You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church Van Alstine. If we have not met, my name is Jace Williamson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and an a unexpected uh, time to be in the pulpit this morning, but I am thankful to be here. And like Chris said, Mike had to go into uh, some emergency uh, appendectomy surgery on Friday. He texts me, start loosening my arm for the bullpen coming in, okay? Uh, and so, but uh, I just want to say he's doing well. I texted with him yesterday. He's home, recovering, resting. Uh, but there is bad news. The doctors say that uh, he's still a Texas fan, which is still, which is incurable, I think. Uh, and so, uh, diseased. But, uh, no, uh, if you have your Bible, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, uh, like I said, this was an unexpected time for me to come to the pulpit, uh, and I looked at John chapter 8 uh, early yesterday morning and read over Mike's notes, and I said, you know what, Mike, you need to preach that next week. Uh, and uh, no, it, it's one of those things that uh, that's not my message. Uh, that was his. Uh, and a, get, a, a sermon is not something that I memorize and give to you. It's something that's given to me to steward. Uh, that's the difference between a talk and a sermon itself. And so this, I believe, was given to me to steward rather than plagiarize what Mike said, which is really good. Come back next week for it. Uh, but, um, but what I want to do today, uh, as many of you know, one of the things that's changed in my life over the last couple of months is I've shifted from being a primarily student minister, student pastor over the last six, seven years into kind of digging in my heels full-time to discipleship and spiritual formation. Uh, and so one of the things that I've been able to do is I've been able to pass off some of the responsibilities uh, of student ministry to two capable people that have uh, roots in this church that, that love your students. And, and, uh, and so it's been really, really joyful for me to kind of take a step back and see how they're serving and loving students and, and, and really freeing for me to think through some, some higher level discipleship stuff for, for the life of our church. And, and one of the things that has really been a burden of mine since a couple years ago when Mike was like, you know what, take a step into discipleship ministry and, and thinking through while doing student ministry is what does a gospel-centered community look like? That's the burden, that's the question that keeps coming back to my mind over and over and over. Because one of the things that I know uh, and hopefully maybe you know is there is at the current time in our culture this epidemic of loneliness this epidemic of divisiveness and this epidemic of polarization that characterizes our culture. And I, I could give you statistics. I could kind of show you stories, but I don't think I need to do that. I think you feel the angst that it is of the polarization, of the division, of the loneliness that we feel. Andy Crouch in his book, uh, The Life We Are Looking For, speaks about this. He talks about that every sphere of communication and expertise is pointing out the same problem. Politicians point it out. Physicians point it out. 
Businesses point it out. Media points it out. And it's all this, the same idea that we've never had more ways to be connected. We've never been so connected in, our, in the history of the world, but we have never been so lonely. Our social media has made us less social and more divided. Our homes are now sanctuaries of alone time and not open doors. One pastor put it this way, we've shortened our tables and heightened our privacy fences. Our dinner tables are empty. It's, it's replaced with fast food. And you see these pockets of society that are trying to create something where people belong and can strive together for something. That's why some of you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and going to work out like crazy people. Okay, like what in the world? It's because you're, 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 they're offering this community that says, this is what we're striving together for. And there's purpose and there's identity. And our culture is searching for that so much that you would get up at 3.30 to go work out. What? But the question that I see in this is what is the church's answer to this epidemic? You know, the church's answer for a long time has been good programming, good worship, really, really good environments, good churches in the sense of like they look good, they're, they're compelling, you, they're attractive, new buildings. What is this achieving? Because the question is, is what is a compelling community? What type of communi- community does FBCVA need to have to impact this culture, this epidemic of loneliness and polarization and division? Because this is what it comes down to. Like I said, this was kind of impromptu. I, I, got, I got word that I needed to preach on Friday evening. And as I was yesterday, I kind of, I, I guard my Saturdays. I'm, I, I, it's family time. It's game time. I go watch my girls cheer, flag football. Like, it's like the highlight of my week, right? Uh, and, you know, there's lots of things that we do on Saturday. And, and it wasn't a time for me to work. So I got up early yesterday thinking about these things, had an outline. said, okay, I think I know where I'm going. Got up really mo- early this morning to kind of write down the rest of my thoughts. I'm a manuscript guy, okay. I like to write out everything I'm going to say. I'm working off bullet points today. It's totally great. No, no telling what's going to come out of my mouth today. But what I know for sure is as I was sitting with a cup of coffee this morning at 4.30, I know that I had been praying over these things for three years as I've been thinking through what Philippians 2 could look like in the midst of FBCBA. I know that he wanted me to tell you this today. Because I believe that God wants me to tell you that he has a vision for this church that goes beyond what we offer, what we build, and what we achieve. It's a compelling countercultural vision of humility that permeates into the DNA that's not programmed, but it's because of what the gospel has done in our lives that reveals the love of Jesus to those outside and going, you know what, I think I want to be a part of that. And I want to share this with you from Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn there. 
Again, we're working on bare bones. We don't have any PowerPoint today. Like there's, we have some scripture for you, but no quotes, anything like that. I'm only going to quote Tim Keller like once today. Okay, it's going to be great. Okay, so let's read chapter 2 of Philippians. It says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. To the glory of God, the Father. This is God's word. I want you to imagine this community for just a minute. The one that the Apostle Paul is talking about in the first two verses. This unified vision that we get. This idea of being of the same mind, being in full accord, the same love. It's beautiful, isn't it? Because the reality is, is we operate in environments that are probably totally opposite than that. The communities that we inhabit are naturally bent to the service of our preferences. You think about how many choices and preferences that you make on a day-to-day basis that are totally centered around what you want. Think about going to a coffee shop or going to Chipotle where your order is the right order, right? No beans, no beans, okay? You think about all these preferences that you have as human beings and our natural inclination is to do what? It's to say, my preferences are right. What I desire is the highest priority. And this is seen in our culture as a, at a high view. Individualism, expressive individualism, to be specific, is this idea that our inside desires are the supreme, the supreme desire. It is to follow this priority and say, this is what is right. And we're taught this from an early age, that whatever matches what our heart says, go forth and multiply. But the results of this sickness in the environment, if if this is a sickness, you can see these on a day-to-day basis. And just to let you know, this may not be news to you, the church is not immune to this. (laughs) 
The church is obviously not immune to the preferences of people as supreme. And here's what the question is, is if I have my preference and you have your preferences, what happens when my preference and your preference run together? Who wins? And so church politics happens, fights happen, division happens, pride happens. But you read verses 1 and 2 with me, or read along with me. Isn't this, isn't this community that he's describing, isn't this something that's desirable? That there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. These are not just Christian words to open up a chapter. Okay? This is not how Paul's just like extrapolating all these holy words. What he's saying is he's, he's saying if Christ is your reality, if, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if love, if the source of love is the reality in the spirit, then that should change your life. That should change the way that you love people. It should change what your priority is. It should change the way where your interests lie. All of these things are changed by the reality of Jesus as king. And so when we think about this, when we think about what verses 3 and 4 say, he's really getting at how to combat a divisive community. Or another way of saying it more positively is how to bring a unified vision to a church. Uh, And here's the thing. I maybe didn't start with this, but I want to say it. I don't want to think about this as this ethereal type of thing that's out there today. I'm talking about what it makes here at FBCBA. What does it mean to be gospel-centered in the way that we're humble and love people? So don't, don't be thinking about this message from out there perspective. What does it mean here? Because he's going to give us, he's going to give us the cure here. Because at the heart of a divided, unhealthy community is the pride of individuals. Notice what Paul says. How is unity possible? He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If you're a KJV, King James person, you may know this verse by vainglory. It's actually a great word that we're going to unpack in just a minute. But you think about this idea of two things, selfish ambition and conceit. This idea of selfish ambition is, is this idea of cut, like the cutthroat, cut your throat to get ahead type of people. Okay, ambition is not bad. Ambition is not sinful. Wanting to do well, excellence, that's not bad. But selfish ambition is this idea of getting ahead no matter what the cost. So pushing people aside. Loving yourself at all expenses. And then you combine this with this idea of vain conceit, vainglory. If ambition, selfish ambition is a pretty obvious phrase, this one goes really deep. It's a super illuminating phrase because what this is, is he's describing a glory deficit that we have. If we talk about this term, it really literally means empty of glory. It's this idea that essentially means that the nature of human persons is to seek their own glory. It's this insatiable desire to be known and loved at any cost. 
I believe all of us have this desire in our hearts. I think it's a, it's a universal human capacity that we have to be loved unconditionally. But it's this idea that we're, we don't have it. So we go seek it. And we go seek it in negative form. And so here's what our desire says. You, uh, we we want to be heard like, you matter. You're not forgotten. You are significant. We are desperate for these words. And that's why we fight. That's why we want to be seen for what we do, rather negatively or positively. Lewis Mead says this. He says, every time you meet a new person, you are unconsciously wondering, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? Life becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster your own self. There is the sickness, pride, which is a hunger for glory, a need for respect, a need to be assured we're real. Think about this. Think about if a community is full of people that's seeking selfish ambition and empty of glory. What will happen? Divisiveness. Sickness. So what is health? What is health? Paul gives us the answer here. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. I don't know if you know this, but humility outside of the Bible, especially in ancient Greek uh, context, was a derogatory term. It wasn't looked at as something that was virtuous. It was looked at as something that was, that was reserved for slaves. To not treat yourself with respect and honor and dignity and put yourself above others was to be considered a lowly person. But the Bible, however, uses this term constantly. It uses this phrase positively. It's because humility is at the center of the gospel itself. You see, when you understand that a relationship with God is not based upon your accomplishments, it's not based upon your successes, it's coming to God and saying, I need your mercy, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness, I need your favor. What is that at its core? It's humility. And when you understand that the core of humility is submission to Christ, that you cannot submit to Christ without humility, you will see how important this term is. I read this this week. I thought this was a great phrase, or excuse me, quote. He says this, you fast, but Satan does not eat. You labor fervently, but Satan never sleeps. The only dimension with which you can outperform Satan is by acquiring Humility, for Satan has no humility. To rebel against our king is to say what? I deserve that spot. I, I can assume the spot of God. And that at its very core is the sin of Satan himself. But when you think about humility... It's sometimes hard to define, isn't it? Humility is very shy. It's one of those terms that's hard to define because uh, every time you start to talk about it, 
you, you, try to, you try to find it, and when you turn the light on, it kind of goes away. But Paul helps us. He gives us, sometimes the best way of understanding a term is to understand its opposite. And that's what he does. So I want you to consider what a community would look like if these things were eliminated from what Paul's saying. Paul says that humility is the opposite of over sinful ambition. This isn't this idea of hard work or passion or excellence. This is the idea of competitiveness that's based on the vainglory, the empty desire to be seen and known and loved. Think about this idea when you look across the table or look across your community group and you see a, a couple and you go, man, if only I could have their life. If only I could have their kids. What is pride at its form, at its root? It's comparison. C.S. Lewis would say it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So humility is this idea of overambition, sinful ways of, of grasping after success in a way that would say, look at me. Look how successful I am. Look how big my house is. Look how much stuff I have. Humility is also the opposite of indifference and hate of others. Paul would say this, count others more significant than yourselves. Let me ask you a question. How can you do that if you're indifferent or hateful of other people's needs? See, this, this manifests itself in the church by this inability to admit when you're wrong, this inability to admit that you can learn from other people. You always have to have your word in there. So I have to tell your stories. You always have to have it your way. You see, when we're indifferent or we hate others or we're looking for, to bolster our own, our own identities, we don't have room in our minds, in ourselves, to put the needs of others above our own. There's this glory deficit. And lastly, I want to bring up that humility is the opposite of self-consciousness. You see, pride is very sneaky. Because we think, often think about pride as the person that wins the game and he's just like talking a whole lot of mess to the other team, loud, bolsterous, arrogant, all of those things. But pride can also be very quiet. Pride can, can be found in superiority and inferiority. When you think about what humility is, humility and insecurity cannot coexist. Because oftentimes in our insecurity, we'll say, you know what, I'm going to self-demean myself and say, you know what, I'm not very good at this. Just so someone will say, but oh no, but you are. 
See how sneaky that can be. Because here's what humility is. I think this is the best definition. Humility is not self-deprecation. It's not going low and, and really, really pushing yourself, well, I'm worthless, I'm this. That's not humility. Humility is having a right view of yourself. When you have a right view of yourself, you can put the interest of yourself and others in the same basket. What do I mean by that? A prideful person can't do this. Because what if someone else gets the recognition? What if someone else gets the credit? There's this insecurity that happens if we don't have humility because we have the wrong view of ourselves. And so what humility does is it levels us out. It doesn't pull us too low and it doesn't exalt us too high. And when you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, this is a perfect example. Jesus was met with a lot of false accusations about his identity, right? We've seen it through the Gospel of John. But what, what did he never do? He never reacted in a way that was reactionary and hateful. So when people tried to bring him low and tell things about himself that it wasn't true, it didn't affect him. But think about this. People don't go the other way. When they said, you are the son of God, he didn't say, no, 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 man. No, don't put that on me. I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my job, you know. He knew it was true. You see, when you have the right view of yourself, recognition or criticism doesn't go to your head. And pride, pride is a fragile ego because it can bolster you up to make you think that you're elevated above people and it can bring you low to think that you're inferior. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever met a person like this? If I did a poll in the room, you could be like, maybe three? Because here's what C.S. Lewis would say about humility. He would say that when you meet a humble person, you don't know it. So you get coffee with somebody, you get lunch with somebody, and they're like, hey man, how's it going? And for an hour and a half, they just, you just barrage them with questions. And they're like, man, things are going great. This, this. And you get done with lunch. You're like, man, that was awesome. You don't think about, wow, that person was really humble. Why? Because they loved you. They loved you. And the, and the, the spotlight wasn't on themselves. You see, a humble person can receive credit, but they don't need the credit. A, pers- a humble person can have attention on themselves, but they don't draw attention to themselves. You see that? It levels you out. But do you see how the outline of this prideful person affects the whole body? When we're characterized by this desire for an unhealthy ambition, this indifference or hate towards other, or self-consciousness, there's no room for unity. We will constantly be knocking people off the throne saying, it's my credit, I get the stage. All of those things will happen in a church community and we will lose the very fact that we're supposed to put their interest above our own. So disunity and preferences reign as king. And so how do we get this? If we, if we desire this, I, I want it. I want it at FBCVA. I want this unified mind. How do we get it? 
very interesting, Paul moves from this practical infighting of like, hey, don't do this, do this. And he starts talking about Jesus. <laughs> and if you look in your Bible, for some of your Bibles, it may look a little different. That's because this is a hymn. It's a liturgical, uh, it's a liturgical mechanism to say this is meant to get you to worship. But wouldn't it make sense in our minds to go, you know what? All right. So he's telling us to be humble. Paul, how do we be humble? Step one, don't be a jerk. All right, that would be great, okay? I wish it was like that. But what Paul says is this. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You see, you never achieve humility by attacking it directly. It's a lot like happiness and joy. I have never invited somebody over to my house and be like, hey, we're having a happiness fellowship. You want to come over? It doesn't, that doesn't happen. Like we go, we're having dinner. We're going to play some games and we're going to have fun. And you leave and you're like, that was great. That was joyful and happy. It didn't even, it wasn't a happiness gathering, okay? And it's the same thing with humility. When we go, okay, guys, let's get humble. We'll miss it. Because when we attack it directly, we could just end up serving ourselves. Because Paul says, look to Jesus. The way to really fix this issue is to look at him. Take your eyes off yourself and look at him. Humility begins by letting the doctrine of Jesus, who he is, catch fire in your hearts, go through your hands and through your mouth to love God and to love people. And notice this, what, what Paul says. He says, he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's attacking doctrine here. What you believe, right belief about Jesus. The CSB says, he didn't exploit, exploit his relationship with God. Listen, Jesus, more than anyone on earth, could have used his power, could have used his status to manipulate and exploit other people to gain glory. But what you see, and Paul points this out, is that he emptied himself. This is what's very interesting about this text because you're, you're thinking, okay, what did he empty himself of? Lots of theologians have, have said this or that. A lot of people have said, you know what? It's, he emptied himself his, of his divinity. That's not true. He was fully God and fully man. So what did he empty himself of? If you read the text... He emptied himself of his glory. See, we are glory seekers. We have a glory void. But this is where Jesus and us are vastly different. Because he had all the glory. And he emptied himself of that. And he took on the form of a human being, a servant. The Bible talks about in Isaiah 53 that there was nothing in the appearance of Jesus that would make him beautiful or make, him, make us desire him. There's nothing about him you'd be like, you know what, that guy. I believe this is what it means that Jesus emptied his glory. 
He emptied himself of the glory that he deserves, the kingship he deserves, the honor he deserves. All of these things he emptied himself of, and he took the form of a servant, humbled himself, became rejectable, willingly took a beating for us, and he gave up his glory so that we could receive glory one day. But here's what's happened. It didn't just take a beating. and He just didn't, just didn't die. He was resurrected. You see his incarnation. You see his atonement. And then you see his exaltation. Because what happens? He was exalted so much. What does it say? That the one who was rejected will one day be the name that everyone says, yeah, that guy is king. Everyone will bow before King Jesus. And if there's anything that Jesus' life and death and resurrection teaches us, it's this. The way up is down. The way to exaltation is through humility. The way to rule is to serve. The way to be rich is to give. The most glorious thing of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest form of glory is to give your glory away to someone else. You see, you and I are desperately trying to fill this, like I've said, but we end up always empty through the promises of success and achievement and a better job and a better marriage. All of these things come up empty, but Jesus became small. He became a servant so that we are big in the eyes of the Father. And when we understand what's bestowed upon us, his righteousness, his sonship, to say, I am love no matter what I do, that's my Father. That is an identity that sets you free from the approval or criticism of other people. It sets you free. From this ability to go, you know what, I got to get more, I got to achieve more, I got to consume more. It's this idea of being totally free to the degree that you're exalting Jesus and, and putting the interest of others above yourself. I don't know of another way to get to a point to where you can serve people and love people selflessly other than looking to the, to the throne of Jesus Christ. I don't know of another way. It always comes back to your own throne of look what I did. But when you take the glory off yourself and look at what Jesus did for you of stepping out of glory and humbling himself and taking the form of a servant, wow, wow. So when you see what Jesus did for you, it fills you up so you're not empty anymore. That glory deficit is no longer there. You'll be able to not think about yourself Everywhere you go. I want you to think about this in the context of the church. What would this look like if we caught this? In our community groups, in our discipleship groups, in in a Sunday morning gathering. You can lose your reputation because Jesus lost his for you. You can take praise, you can take criticism because you aren't dependent or sustained by it. You can give without being recognized. You can serve in the lowliest of positions because it's not about you. This is what the gospel 
does for you. And I want you to imagine a church like this that catches the vision, that's gripped by a reality of the resurrection, that the way up is down, that Jesus is the sinner. His life and death and resurrection drives our actions. Church, I, I believe, I believe if we're not just playing this program of like, hey, you gotta give to this, you gotta do this, let's have another missions organization, all those types of things, those are great, great things. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that will drive us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And how small our preferences look in light of this. I would put this on a slide if I had time this morning. So just letting you know, this is what I believe, the crux of what I'm trying to say. A community that's not radically shaped by the love of Jesus will be radically shaped by the love of self. We will begin to look like what we love. What if the desire to put others first was our first reaction? What if the desire to be there in the best of times and the worst of times for the suffering that happens in the midst of this church every single week, that was our joy. What if our desire to give radically, what if this church became not, wow, they have the best programs, What if it was marked by a certain love that just looked different? What if it was marked by people that gathered to pray and got in the low places and said, you know what? This is what humility looks like. To get in your closet and to go to the throne for people that are hurting every single day. You don't get any recognition from that. You don't need any extra points. What does it mean to serve the widow and the orphan and the poor in our context? We won't get there if we're focused on ourselves. And we won't get there if we're just focused on humility. We'll get there we're focused on Jesus. You know, one of the things about revivals and renewals is we often think about these things in the context of unbelievers. A revival is for people to come and hear the gospel and get saved. But this idea of renewal, it's not just for the unbeliever, it's for the believer. It's when the Holy Spirit sets your heart on fire for the truths that you already know. I believe that some of you already know these truths. Some of you know to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's my prayer. What does it mean for a church to be set on fire for these truths? Because we believe that Jesus accepts me despite of what I do, despite of my failures, and therefore I'll live a good life. 
but we often function in this practical view of I live a good life and Jesus accepts me. Church, the truths of the gospel have to be set on fire in our hearts. And this radical vision of community begins with a group of people like this going, let's set our eyes on Jesus and his gospel and his resurrection. I heard a story about a young man who went into a town to climb a mountain. And he went in this little town, and this mountain, this town was kind of known for this mountain. And, a, and beyond, uh, beyond this pub he, where he stayed, he was next morning going to get up and, and go climb this mountain. And, and this old lady said, hey, listen, that mountain is taller than you think it is, and the weather is worse than you think it is. And this young man had a lot of experience. He's like, I got this. And later, several hours later, he came back down, and he only got about, got about halfway up. And he was defeated. He's beaten down. And the old lady came to him, and he said, listen, I want you to listen to her response. It's awesome. If you'd gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. In other words, if you would have been humble in attacking this, you would have been exalted. This is exactly what the gospel is. One day we will be exalted with Jesus in our humility, knowing that he's the only one that can save us. And there is no doubt, church, that we are ascending a mountain. And what I mean by that is we're seeing a lot of success. We have new people coming to our church. We're building a new building. We have more program. We're hiring new people. All of those things are great markers of success, but it's not success. From a worldly standpoint, we're looking really good. But if we lose our gaze and start looking at these little things that permeate and say, you know what, you're doing really good. We will lose what we were created to do. To be a city on a hill. To represent the king in all humanity. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com. Dot com.